Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. Controversy swirls and denials continue when it comes to sepsis. Reporting our lead story this morning is the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. In other news, why are some skilled nursing facilities being targeted by Medicare Advantage auditors? Healthcare attorney Nicole Lemanuel is standing by with that report. Who are the outstanding healthcare leaders for 2018? Dr. Ronald Hirsch will reveal his Hirsch's heroes later in the broadcast. Healthcare attorney David Glazer reports on another example of risky business. Suicide rates in rural counties are reported to be nearly double that of urban counties. Reporting on healthcare in rural America will be Leslie Marsh. She is the chief executive officer at Lexington Regional Health Center in Lexington, Nebraska. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Another year has gone by, and as you heard, I'll be doing my Hirsch's Heroes today. But you're going to have to wait for my second segment. First, I want to review the last year and look ahead to the next. Of course, 2018 was really the year of the knee. CMS dedicated over 4,000 words to explain how to determine status on these patients, and that should have been our first indication that this was going to be a mess. Then the orthopedic professional societies didn't make it any easier with their position statements that contradicted CMS regulations. And physicians in bundled payment programs are doubly upset, realizing that all their work reducing costs and length of stay will no longer lead to shared savings. Fortunately, CMS chose not to move total hip arthroplasty off the inpatient only list, nor to allow any joint replacements at surgery centers, yet. And don't forget that CMS put the rack audits of total knees on hold for two years. So that means that any admissions after July 1st of 2019 are potentially at risk. And speaking of surgery centers, CMS will be allowing cardiac catheterizations at surgery centers starting January 1st. This is going to be very interesting to watch. CMS has already had requests to allow cardiac stenting in surgery centers, so that may happen in a year or two. If total joints and cardiac stents move to surgery centers, there are going to be some very nervous hospital CFOs. Now, 2018 also saw the change to the requirement for that elusive signature on the inpatient admission order. If you have a process hardwired, don't change a thing. But if one slips through, bill it. Likewise with the admission order. If you miss one and it was an otherwise compliant admission, bill it. But actually, I really should say, read my Rack Monitor articles, Talk to your compliance officer and consider billing it. And 2018 was also another year of increasing difficulty with many of the Medicare Advantage plans. It seems to be, get, seems to be getting harder and harder to get approval for um, admission for an MA patient. They want observation to go on for days and days. They won't do a peer-to-peer if the determination's already been issued. And of course, getting authorization for inpatient rehab or long-term acute care is nearly impossible. But the news is not going to get any better in 2019. 
CMS has been actively pushing Medicare beneficiaries to sign up for Medicare Advantage plans, much to the dismay of Medicare beneficiary rights organizations such as the Center for Medicare Advocacy. Now, we also saw Medicare give themselves an extra year to update the conditions of participation for discharge planning. That was really unexpected and really depressing. If they adopt all those proposals, hospitals will be scrambling to find new case management staff, and along with the increase in all of the MA planned patients and the phone calls that those patients require to get approvals, soon there are going to be no nurses left to actually take care of patients. But it wasn't all bad news. CMS did approve some policies which will lead to burden reductions for physician documentation and their fee schedule. Now back to you, Chuck, and I'll see you in a couple minutes. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now with the Monitor Money Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what's risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. A big part of staying out of trouble is staying on top of the government's enforcement priorities. So today's segment is an example of what we're going to discuss in depth during our December 18th webinar on avoiding legal risks, and you can sign up under the handouts tab. So on Thursday, the Justice Department announced that Ectelian, and I wouldn't have known how to pronounce this without help from Mary, Be- Mary Beth, but it's uh, A-C-T-E. L-I-O-N, like Actalion Pharmaceuticals, has agreed to pay $360 million, yes, $360 million, to resolve allegations that it paid kickbacks by giving contributions to the Caring Voice Coalition, a charitable organization that then used the contributions to pay the co-payments of payments purchasing Actilian drugs. Now, you may recall that there have been a few other settlements related to this same charity. The government's core allegation is that by eliminating co-payment issues, drug companies were able to raise prices without alienating patients because the patient wasn't responsible for any share of the charge. Now, the government stressed that Actilian had a program to assist patients who were poor. However, Medicare patients were specifically excluded from that program. A key part of the government's allegation is that the company was gathering data about how many of its patients were using the Caring Voice Coalition and geared its donations to cover exactly the amount used by its patients, but not patients who used a competitor's drugs. So what lessons can we learn from this settlement? I don't think that's an easy question to answer. Certainly, one factor influencing this case is the belief that drug companies are rapidly increasing their prices and that this program allowed that trend to continue without prompting a political outcry. Now, it's well known that routine waiver of co-payments can be a problem. One interesting question is whether the government would have viewed the case differently if Actilian had used its own program to adjust the co-payments. I don't know the answer, but this is the key point. I don't think people should panic based on this because I'm confident that this case shouldn't prompt people to think that waiving co-payments for the poor is inherently problematic. I really don't believe that it is. Hospitals can, and if they're tax-exempt, I would say should, provide assistance to poor patients. I think the big lesson of this case is that if you design a plan to lower patient responsibility, while you're not offering the same discount to insurers, you may face trouble. When you find ways to, air quotes this, help people with high-deductible plans, those plans are going to view it as a means to circumvent their agreement with their insured. Both the government and private insurers have co-payments as a means to control utilization. 
Now, I think the logic behind them is somewhat questionable. After all, why do we have a copayment for hospital admissions when a physician decides whether you need to be in the hospital or not? Um, I would argue you don't want patients refusing the physician's recommendation because of the copayment, but I'm not in charge. It's important to remember that an insurer's obligation to pay a claim derives entirely from the patient's obligation to pay. So if you tell systemically patients that they don't need to pay, the insurers have a really strong argument that they don't need to pay. It's basically the concept of indemnification. The insurer stands in the shoes of the patient. Now that said, when a patient is truly destitute, I don't think many courts are going to absolve the insurer of the duty to pay. While I'm comfortable waiving copayments for the poor, any broader effort to circumvent the requirement of a copayment will be viewed, dare I say, as not copaysetic. So Chuck, many people thought that Barry Manilow was singing about a nightclub, but I think we can't discount the possibility that music and passion are always in fashion at the copay, copay cabana. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Bettershin Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And coming up at about nine and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Nicole Emanuel, Leslie March. David Glazer returns again. Dr. Ronald Hurst has his 2018 Hearst's Heroes. And our special guest, Mary Beth Pace. This is Monday, it's December the 10th, 2018. And you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Trusted for more than 50 years, the AMA drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA store offers a full line of products to address CPT, HCPCS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more, visit amastore.com. Thank you, Clark Anthony. And a programming note, healthcare attorney David Glazer is going to report on issues that could trigger False Claims Act cases. His webcast is coming your way on Tuesday, December the 18th at 1.30 p.m. It's going to be great. It's going to be like sitting across the table from David Glazer at his 32nd floor office building. Why are some skilled nursing facilities being targeted by Medicare Advantage auditors? Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has that report. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Medicare Advantage plans are taking control of post-acute costs, a study has now found. Apparently, closed networks are coming to Medicare Advantage when it comes to skilled nursing facilities, or SNFs. Medicare Advantage plans are trying to reduce post-acute care spending by limiting the skilled nursing facilities in their networks and by capping the length of stay. And SNFs and hospitals are not happy. And why should they be? Medicare Advantage plans have strong incentives to control costs, including post-acute spending. However, to my knowledge, no research has examined the methods that Medicare Advantage plans use to control or reduce post-acute costs. A study conducted by the American Journal of Managed Care was aimed to understand the unintended consequences of these new Medicare Advantage plans. 
They conducted 154 interviews with administrative and clinical staff working in 10 Medicare Advantage plans, 16 hospitals, and 25 skilled nursing facilities. According to the study, to reduce post-acute costs, Medicare Advantage plans said they tried to direct patients to specific SNFs and to limit the length of time the patients stay at those SNFs. They did not, however, report trying to influence the initial post-hospital discharge setting, and neither SNF nor hospital participants reported Medicare Advantage plans trying to influence the type of post-acute settings. Of course, why would they? Some have noted quality of care decreases when the Medicare Advantage plans come into play. Medicare Advantage plans authorized and capped the number of days they would pay for patients to receive skilled nursing facility care, and skilled nursing facility care had to then ensure the caps were not exceeded. A quote from the study, SNF responses to the Medicare Advantage plans largely authorization-based length of stay system were frequently negative with adverse consequences related to length of stay reduction, including unwillingness of SNFs to take on patients from specific plans that were perceived to be too authoritative and whose practices were deemed too burdensome. The frustration seems widespread with both skilled nursing facilities and hospitals, at least within the sample of the study. But the skilled nursing facilities that are actually refusing to work with Medicare Advantage plans is very limited, probably because the money that they are making makes a difference. Skilled nursing facilities being unwilling to take patients from certain plans could have significant implications. Patients could be adversely affected if skilled nursing facilities push back on the Medicare Advantage plans. There also seems to be a disconnect regarding one of the most common refrains that surrounds Medicare Advantage, care coordination. To be sure, many skilled nursing facilities see results when engaging with Medicare Advantage plans. For instance, it is very useful sometimes for a skilled nursing facility to have a staff member dedicated to working with the plans and identifying benefits even within the authorization framework. Regardless, Medicare Advantage they're taking control of their group networks. It is becoming a closed network. Managed care is changing and changing fast. The networks will be more difficult to get accepted. So you need to get in now before it's too late. That's it for now, Chuck. Thank you. Back to you. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner of Atomic Law Group, and you can read her article on that issue in this Thursday's edition of the Rec Monitor E News. <music> Suicide rates in rural counties are reported to be nearly double that of urban counties for 2017. That, according to a study by the CDC, reporting on the state of health care in rural America is Leslie March. Leslie is the chief executive officer of Lexington Regional Health Center in Lexington, Nebraska. Good morning, Leslie. Welcome to Monitor Monday. Good morning, and thank you, Chuck. The holidays are upon us, and while we tend to think of this as a time of joy, we must recognize that it is also a time that can amplify stressors for people who are facing some financial or personal difficulties. Underneath the holiday joy, there are often significant pressures which can go unnoticed until tragedy strikes. One visible trend is that suicide rates are going up, and they are going up in a way that illustrates the growing divide that now exists between urban and rural America. The CDC's report that Chuck mentioned shows rural suicide rates that are now double that of urban. Rural America isn't just farming. 
you know, small communities, manufacturing, educational institutions, and Main Street businesses. In many small communities, the hospital is a cornerstone of the community, a major employer and a major driver of local economic activity, but also a critical component in providing the access to health care that is crucial to high-quality life. But the economic stressors in rural America are now closing hospitals at an increasing rate. According to a September GAO report, 64 rural hospitals have closed in the past five years, which is double the rate of the previous five years. Hospitals are not just buildings. They are a community of healthcare providers that work together with the broader community to help people when they need help. Rural populations tend to be older, sicker, and poorer than their urban populations, but rural populations are not monolithic. They are surprisingly diverse. This diversity then guarantees that a one-size-fits-all solution is never the best approach. In the heartland, where I live, right beside the 100th meridian, farming is central to the economy. Farmers, who are now facing increasing economic stress from low crop prices, high property taxes, high input costs, and who are caught in the crossfire of the tariff war, are particularly vulnerable. Many of these difficulties are outside the power or control of an individual farmer to change. That powerlessness can lead to hopelessness and an increased risk of depression and suicide. Remember, for farmers, there really isn't a work-life distinction. They live where they work, and they work where they live. Farmers and other rural people pride themselves on their independence and self-sufficiency. Many people who are struggling will give few outward clues. They are still working and attending church, but not interacting and engaging in activities or hobbies that used to add pleasure and joy to a sometimes harsh way of life. They are not likely to seek out help. So how can we help? We need to watch for the outward signs of depression. Changes in routine, increasing isolation, indifference to their appearance, or dependence on substances like drugs or alcohol. The family members, including children, may give you a glimpse into the person's mental health, which may have put them onto a path leading to suicide. The crisis requires a community response, and one part of that is through outreach efforts like farm assistance hotlines. A farmer in Nebraska calling a hotline can get free financial advice, legal advice, and access to mental health providers. Rural areas tend to have extreme shortages when it comes to psychiatrists. However, there are other hospital link sources. Lexington Regional Health Center has behavioral health trained community health workers, nurse practitioners that are certified in psych, and other licensed mental health providers. The upside of rural is that we are a caring and sharing community. The people who come to my hospital are not just patients. They are my neighbors and my friends, and we truly do care about one another. We can connect people with the best and right resource. Maybe it is their pastor, or maybe it is a counselor. Regardless, during this holiday season, it is important to remember that we are not powerless or hopeless and that no one is alone. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Leslie. That was the Chief Executive Officer at Lexington Regional Health Center in Lexington, Nebraska, Leslie Marsh. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, controversy swirls and denials continue when it comes to reporting sepsis. Reporting our lead story this morning is the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. Good morning, Mary Beth. Welcome to Monitor Monday. And so how does Trinity Health approach the dilemma of sepsis? Good morning, Chuck. As far as Trinity Health goes, I'll go a little bit broader and then a little bit closer to home. So I fear that we are discussing Medicare Advantage plans yet again. Nicole spoke about the SNF and issues around length of stay, and now I'm going to basically discuss sepsis and issues probably around length of stay in the hospital. 
Starting in January, a few of the larger companies want to begin to audit acute care hospitals for their sepsis patients post-hospital stay. They want to do what they call clinical validation audits. When questioning the reason to target in on sepsis patients, they tell us they are doing this only because CMS requires it. CMS requires audits for certain, but appointed clinical validation audit that pulls charts through a proprietary algorithm? I'm not so sure. And since the algorithm is proprietary, I can only go up the ladder of inference on what the algorithm looks like, thinking that length of stay is definitely in the top criteria. Let's visit sepsis in particular. Based on the 100,000 Lies campaign with IHA, IHI way back in 2004, cited Don Berwick's plenary address, we were all invited to help save lives. 2010, we took a step further and launched a campaign focused on early identification and rapid treatment for patients exhibiting subtle changes in their condition that could be associated with the earliest signs of sepsis. With the help of people such as Peter Provenos, Trinity Health was guided even further in decreasing harm to hospitalized patients. We were not waiting for end-stage organ disease to set in before we began to treat these patients for their infection that was leading down the path to sepsis. Most of our acute care environments now have something called a code sepsis to activate a team of clinicians to review and act fast. I'm not going to discuss the actual coding for the chart of sepsis because I don't have the experience in coding. However, I think the important part of the clinical care of these individuals is what is at risk here. If insurances start to take away codes when reviewing cases for clinical validation, they win by keeping their money. Where are the patients in this strategy? They will still get the care that they deserve, but will hospitals get the reimbursement they deserve? I'm convinced we are not the only organization that has worked on a sepsis alert. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that hospitals that haven't worked on some type of a sepsis alert would be outliers. Our results have improved our care dramatically. Although I did just hear last week that an executive from one of the payers informed us we had ample opportunity to improve care, the interesting thing to me is that we have all had ample opportunity to improve our care. Why would he target our charts for this clinical validation then? And more importantly, if he thinks we provide such poor care, why is he willing to contract with us? But that is a topic for another Monitor Monday segment someday. Who should we be contracting with and who should we steer clear of? And I really only know enough about contracting to be dangerous, so I will leave that to my payer strategy partners. Here we are in moving into 2019, and the way the insurance companies are thanking us for these early interventions is by taking away the very diagnosis that we have improved in treating. If indeed these need to audit charts by CMS rule for clinical validation, why are they focusing on a dedicated diagnosis? Would that benefit their whole managed care lives population? Why wouldn't they want to audit some other diagnoses as well? Or is all of the low-hanging fruit already gone? When you think of ambulatory sensitive conditions, perhaps it is true that the low-hanging fruit is gone. But if they start to audit based on length of stay alone, most of those patients have a two-day obstay before they were even allowed to be inpatient. So auditing for one- and two-day stays is the wrong way to do this. Why aren't we all just getting around a table and discussing these cases? How is it that after the fact they can decide whether we have enough documentation to support the care we provided? I still maintain that insurance companies need to pay hospitals and physicians and others for what we do. Call them a red patient. Call them a blue patient. Pay us for what we do. Thank you, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you very much, Mary Beth. That was the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. And here's a program note. You can learn more about sepsis in an exclusive 
sepsis webcast. It's coming your way next Thursday, December 13th at 1.30 p.m. Be sure to register now and take advantage of a very low, low rate. It's the sepsis webcast. It's coming your way December 13th at 1.30 p.m. This year, as in previous years during Monitor Monday, Dr. Ronald Hirsch announces his Hirsch's Heroes. Now, these are outstanding healthcare professionals whose dedication and professionalism has caught the attention of Dr. Hirsch. Here now, drum roll please, with the 2018 Hirsch's Heroes is, once again, Dr. Hirsch. It's been my honor over the past few years to recognize people who I think have made a difference. And it's not easy. Many people work hard every day doing the right thing. Last year, I honored Dr. Vinay Prasad, an oncologist from Oregon, who wrote a book, Ending Medical Reversal, that will change the way any medical professional thinks about our patient care. I also honored Dr. Jen Gunter, who calls out medical pseudoscience, and Dr. Eddie Hugh, the president of the American College of Physician Advisors. This year, I have three more. My first honoree is actually a group of people the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. I'm sure everyone has seen these TV commercials for lawyers looking for patients harmed by medical implants. While these commercials are quite annoying, the issue they raise is actually quite real. The approval process for medical devices used in the United States and around the world is flawed. This group of 250 journalists in 36 countries spent a year analyzing data and writing articles on the flaws in the system and the patients who were harmed. I would suggest all listeners read some of these articles. You'll find them by doing an internet search for implant files. The next honoree is someone that the top 10 listeners know very well, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is an emergency medicine doctor who is a CDI expert. I first encountered her in Actus pre-conference for physician advisors and we immediately clicked. Her approach to CDI and teaching matched my approach to teaching and discussing Medicare regulations, which is exemplified in something she says commonly, just tell the truth. She's also my hero because she had the guts to leave her job and start out on her own doing CDI education. If you don't read her ICD-10 monitor articles or listen to her on Talk 10 Tuesday, you should. And one bit of trivia. Dr. Reamer coached her son, Scott, to a fourth-place finish in the Scripps National Spelling Bee in 2008, and she edited his book on the keys to success in the Spelling Bee, which is now in its fifth edition. Thank you, Erica, for being one of my heroes. Finally, my third honoree is someone whose career began in 1965 as the writer of a front-page newspaper article entitled, New Tower Plays Vital Role in Air Efficiency. From being a cub reporter for the Claremont Sentinel, he moved into advertising and actually worked on advertising for the first McDonald's drive-in, and he is now best known as the publisher of Rack Monitor and ITD-10 Monitor. That, of course, is our own Chuck Buck. I had the honor of working with Chuck for the last six years, and it has been a pleasure. I really look forward to my Monitor Monday segment to catch up with Chuck and find out about the weather in San Diego. On Monitor Monday and Talk 10 Tuesday, he manages to coordinate multiple guests, some of whom greatly surpass their designated time limits, and he produces a great show every time. He has let me write articles and present webinars on whatever I think is potentially of interest to the listeners and readers, and never stops me from being my usual sarcastic and snarky self. And for that, I am grateful. Thank you, Chuck. So there you are, another fine group of honorees. Back to you, Chuck. Ho, ho. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services. You can learn more about those Hirsch's heroes. Be sure to read this Thursday's edition of the Rock Monitor Read News. Thank you again, Dr. Hirsch. Now it's the time for the Monitor Monday Q&A. And David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. Uh, you bet, Chuck. And, and I've got Whitney Houston playing in my head uh, for you as well. So I've got a question here from, a, from someone that's right up, Nicole. I've got two. So one for Nicole, and then this one's kind of related. So can a hospital encourage a patient to go to a particular sniff? And the answer to this one is somewhat complicated. Um, I think the short answer is you can encourage, you just can't require. There's actually a condition of participation that says a hospital may not specify or otherwise limit the qualified providers that are available to the patient. And the, the uh, interpretive guidelines on the state operations manual use the term direct and say that you can't direct the patient or otherwise limit where people go. But that, to me, is different from recommending. And so I would say that a hospital can recommend a sniff. It simply can't, it can't prohibit people from going anyplace else, and it does have to clearly tell patients that they have freedom of choice and can go wherever they want. So I would say directing and specifying and limiting are different from recommending. Um, Nicole, my question, uh, question for you is if a Medicare Advantage patient declines a patient's ability to go to a particular SNF, do they have an immediate appeal right? They do, and that's a, that's a very good question because it comes to also quality of care. Obviously, different facilities are going to have different quality of care, and if I am a patient and I have a Medicare Advantage plan and I choose to go to a certain SNF and I'm denied, I absolutely can appeal that because they cannot force me to go to one that I am not pleased with. That said, the SNFs also have to really work hard to get along with the Medicare Advantage because Medicare Advantage has so much authority. The SNFs also need to have the right of appeal as well. Thanks, Nicole. Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much, and thank you, Nicole. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you so very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, whom you just heard, Leslie Marsh, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and our special guest, Mary Beth Pace at Trinity Health, and we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. And a program note, this is going to be the last Monitor Monday for 2018. We'll be back on Monday, January 14th, with our special 60-minute broadcast look back, look ahead. In the meantime, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts on demand, anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Until our return on Monday, January the 14th, with our special 60-minute broadcast, have a safe and compliant holiday, everyone. I'm Chuck Bucker, morning for Monitor, Monday Direct Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.